So we have been in this sermon series called Yield. We're reading together through the book of Joshua. And we've had a central question that we've asked every single week. The question is, how do I yield my heart to God? Uh, That question came from Joshua, who's the leader of God's people, Joshua's farewell speech at the end of his life. And we've looked at that question each step of the way through a few different kind of parts of the story. We've looked at it as God led the Israelites off of a 40-year roundabout. We said, you know what, if, you, if we're ever stuck on a roundabout in your life, God's going to sustain you in that wilderness, but he can also lead you off of it. We looked at it as God did, he, he worked in an unexpected way through one of the most unexpected people. The prostitute Rahab became the hero of the story. We learned that when we yield our hearts to God, nobody is ever beyond hope. And then as the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, we talked about how we learned to consecrate, to set aside our days and our activities, consecrate our lives to God, and remember what God has done in the past so that we're all the more ready to see and celebrate what God wants to do in the present and in the future. But today, I want to not only look at this question, how do I yield my heart to God, but I also want to look at kind of the question behind the question. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes, sometimes somebody asks you a question, and on the surface, it's a fine question. But you know that there's kind of a deeper question sitting just behind it. I experienced it this the other day when my youngest son, Asa, climbed up on the counter, and he picked up a glass. It wasn't a plastic glass. It wasn't an acrylic glass. It was a glass glass, and he dropped it on the floor. And he looked at me and he said, how'd that happen? (laughs) But the question behind the question is, am I about to get in trouble right now? Because I want to know whether or not I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm not going to ask that question. I'm going to ask, how'd that happen? So today in the story of Joshua, the story of God's people, the Israelites, the story of God at work in this world through his people, um, we're going to read some texts that for many people throughout history have been really challenging. And they've been texts that have caused me and many people to ask a question behind the question, how do I yield my heart to God? Here's the question that I think will come up for us today. Is this a God to whom I even want to yield, right? Because if I'm going to yield my heart to God, I have to first be in a place where I say, that's God is a good God. It's a trustworthy God. It's a God who is worth yielding my heart to, because if that's not true, then I don't care how to do it. I don't even want to do it in the first place. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm, I'm going to get to that second question. Is God even a God worth yielding my heart to? But, but to get there, I need to first just briefly kind of summarize Joshua chapters 5 through 8. If you want to turn uh, in your Bibles, uh, whether, you know, digitally or physically, uh, I guess if it's digital, you still probably have something physically in your hand, but whatever. Um, If you want to kind of read along, you'll you'll get, you know, you'll get more detail, but I'm just going to quickly summarize the whole story. Here's how it goes. So Joshua and the Israelites, um, they've crossed the Jordan River, And now they're looking at Jericho, and they're getting ready for the first battle. Joshua is, you know, his his heart is racing because he's the new commander of the Lord's army, and this is his first battle. 
And so he's all like nervous and he's like, oh, how's it going to go? And just before the battle begins, Joshua finds himself standing face to face with a heavenly being. At first, we're told it's an angel, but then later it seems to maybe be God himself. So we don't exactly know, but it's some sort of heavenly being. Now, Joshua is a good ancient commander. And so he thinks about warfare differently than us. See, we might think to ourselves, in war, the nation with the most soldiers or the best technology or the strongest strategy, that might be the nation that's going to win the war. Joshua, in his mindset, thought, whichever nation has the stronger God, that nation will win. That's just the default assumption for ancient Near Eastern warfare. Whoever's got is stronger, that nation's going to win. End of story. Uh, nothing else really matters. So when Joshua finds himself standing face to face with this pretty powerful looking being, he asks the obvious question. He says, hey, um, are you on my side? Because I'd really like you to be on my side. You look like the kind of thing I'd like to have on my, are you on my side? Or are you on their side? Because if you're on their side, I might have to rethink my plans at the moment. Anybody ever asked this question to God before? Hey, God, are you on my side? Because I would really like you to be on my side. We actually have songs that we sing that say God is on my side. And the heart of that song is, I I want to affirm the intentions of that song because it means for us to learn that God wants good for you. God wants to give blessing to you. Um, But we're we're a little challenged by the answer that this creature, this being gives. Because Joshua says, you on my side? Are you on their side? And he answers, neither. What? What do you mean neither? The right answer was obvious. (laughs) My side. But the story starts with a pretty challenging um, idea. And I would, I mean, heck, we could do a whole sermon on this, but unfortunately we don't have time. The story starts with with the assumption that God is never actually on any person's side. Rather, God invites you to join him in what he's doing. God is on his own side. We're the ones that have to make the choice. Fortunately for Joshua, he has already been going the direction that God has been leading him to go. So we now get into kind of the heart of the narrative. Part one, Joshua goes and attacks the city of Jericho. But right off the bat, God says, hey, we're not going to do this the way that you might think you do this. There's sort of a, a standard siege warfare methodology, and God says, we're not doing it that way. Here's the plan, Joshua. Okay, what's the plan, God? You're going to walk around the city. Okay, walk around the city. And then you're going to do it again. And you're going to do it again for six days. Joshua's like, God, this isn't a good plan. I mean, he doesn't say this. This is in the text. I'm just reading this into the text. He's like, this, this, I mean, it really doesn't make any, you just want me to walk around the city? And God's like, yes. And while you're walking around the city, I need all of your soldiers to be quiet. No shouting aloud. He's like, have you met the soldiers? You want them to be quiet? You want them to just walk around the city six times, once each day for six days? That's the plan. But then on the seventh day, okay, this is going to be good. On the seventh day, I want you to walk around the city seven times. I mean, I mean, this is Joshua's first battle. He's a new commander. He's excited. And God's like, basically, throw out the playbook. Don't do anything that makes any sense whatsoever. Do what I tell you to do, even though you're going to feel like a fool the whole time you're doing it. But then, on the seventh day, 
after your seventh lap around the city. Then you're going to blow the trumpets. And then when the trumpets blow, all of the soldiers can shout, and I'm going to deliver the city into your hand. Joshua takes a big deep breath, and he's like, I really hope you're right. Because otherwise, I mean, my reputation is just going to be bad. I mean, my social media profiles, nobody's going to follow me anymore after this embarrassment. This is just not. But sure enough, God delivers the city of Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. And Joshua secures his first victory. He's very excited. And so sure enough, he moves on to the next battle in front of him, the city of Ai, or Ai. I don't exactly know how to pronounce it, but it's an ancient word, so we can, we can kind of do what we want. Ai. Um, and Joshua sends some spies, and these spies actually know what they're doing. They come back, they're like, dude, Joshua, no big deal. City's not that big, not that well fortified, not that many soldiers. Just, just send a couple thousand of your men. Don't even send the whole army. So Joshua sends just a few of his soldiers, and they get beat. I mean, they literally are like running away with the soldiers from AI, chasing after them, hacking them down. It is humiliating. So humiliating, in fact, that it just causes a lot of inner turmoil for Joshua. Here is his response. Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. Joshua's basically asking, God, I thought we were going where you were sending me to go, and now we just get beat. What in the world does this mean? Well, come to find out, one of the soldiers in the Israelite army, a guy named Achan, or it it might more accurately be said Achan, but I don't don't really talk that way, so we'll call him Achan. Um, Achan, when... Jericho had been defeated, they were given very specific instructions. They said, everything you find in the city of Jericho, everything you find, all the gold, all the silver, all the flat screen TVs, all the PlayStations, like everything you find, we are going to devote to the Lord. And I gave you an image from that a couple weeks ago. If you're going to devote something to the Lord, you're going to say, this is only going to be used for God's purposes, for sort of holy, sacred purposes. I use the example of the little communion cup that we have. We have devoted it. It's not here. It's just imaginarily here. But it was here a couple weeks ago, so you can see it in your mind. We've devoted that to only be used to serve communion here at the church. Now, I could take that cup, and I could drink my morning coffee out of it, and that might be okay, but I've devoted it to the Lord, and as holy and sacred as the morning coffee is... We're only going to use it for communion. Well, Achan decided to go ahead and take some of the treasures for himself from Jericho. And he knew that he was doing a bad thing right when he did it because the text tells us that not only did he take the treasures, but he brought them home and he didn't hang the flat screen TV up on the wall of his tent. No, he dug a hole in the floor of his tent and he put all the treasure into the hole and covered it with a rug. Are you familiar with this? Like you're in the middle of doing something, and you're like, this is not a good, I'm not supposed to be doing this right now. This is a bad decision. And even before you get done doing the dumb thing that you're in the middle of doing, you're already planning how to hide it from other people. Achan knew that he was doing something wrong because he was hiding it from the very beginning. And come to find out, that's the reason the Israelite army lost their second battle. So Joshua does what God commands him to do and punishes Achan and actually his whole family for his disobedience. In a sense, Achan 
is fighting against God just like the people of Jericho and Ai were fighting against God, and the consequences were equal. So sure enough, Israel goes back. They fight Ai a second time. Again, with a brilliant strategy, they've got some people in hiding, so they attack, and then they're like, oh no, we're running away again, just like last time. Ah. But then when the soldiers of Ai come out a second time, they had an ambush ready. Bam! And so Ai is defeated. So here's what we've got. Israelite, um, Israel's army fights the city of Jericho and wins. They fight the city of Ai and they lose. They find out that Achan, one of their own, has uh, done a serious wrongdoing, and so he's punished. There's consequences. And so then they fight Ai again a second time, and they win. Woven throughout that whole narrative are a bunch of individual words and phrases and text, text that kind of show up almost as a theme throughout it, that form the core of um, what makes this section of scripture kind of a pretty big problem for a lot of people. I'm going to read some of those to you now. Uh, this first one comes right after the defeat of Jericho. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Or again, after it's found out that Achan had sinned, uh, we learn about the consequences both for him, but also it says the rest, and that refers to his entire extended family. Uh, this is Joshua speaking to Achan. Why have you brought this trouble? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Or finally, um, a scripture that comes right after the, the eventual defeat of the city of Ai. Uh, here's what we read about the end of that story. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day. All the people of Ai. Okay, I read that text. I read these stories, and, and what I see is it looks to me like God is telling his people to kill not just the soldiers, the men, but also the women and the children in these cities. And I read that, and I say to myself, is that what a good God does? I mean, if I'm supposed to yield my heart to God, is this the kind of God, if, if God behaves this way, is this the kind of God that I actually even want to yield my heart to? And I'll be honest, at first glance, my answer is no. I don't like that very much. There's uh, a book you may have heard of, uh, a guy named Richard Dawkins, um, pretty well-known atheist. He makes the argument, and he points to this text as, as well as other examples. He says, the only rational conclusion is that God is a monster. That's the conclusion of Richard Dawkins, and I think that's, quite frankly, the conclusions of not a small number of people in our world today. But here's what I want to do. I want to look a little more closely. I want to I think pretty deeply about what we just saw, and I want to say, I think we have good reason. Not fairy tale reason, not just I'm trying to sweep it under the rug and ignore it reason, but good reason 
concrete reason to come to a different conclusion. And here's my hope. I don't know if, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with this. Maybe some of you even presently find this to be a challenge. Um, certainly, I'm guessing many of us have maybe family members, maybe friends or neighbors, maybe colleagues at work. We've come across people in our lives for whom this is a deeply problematic part of their life. I mean, they would say, I don't follow God. I don't do any, I'm like, keep me away. And part of the reason they say keep me away is because of stories like this. So here's what I want to do. I want to really clearly uh, state the problem. What is the problem? Uh, I want to talk about the stakes. How high are the stakes? Uh, What what is at stake, depending on our answer to this question and how we read stories like this? And then I want to, as quickly as I can, but hopefully clearly as I can, make the argument based on history, based on archaeology, and based on a little bit of just good critical thinking. Do we have to come to the conclusion that God is a monster, or could we come to a different conclusion? And if you would, I'm actually going to pause right here and and pray again. Um, Would you pray with me? God, I ask first, if there's anybody in this room for whom this is a serious problem, uh, help them to have ears to be open um, to some new ideas about who you are and how you're at work in this world. God, for the people in, our, in sort of our sphere of life, maybe friends, maybe family, uh, call to mind, would you call to mind in our hearts and minds right now, anybody that maybe um, this could be a, a really beneficial, a really critical conversation that maybe we might have with people in our lives. I pray that we would think well about who you are, think well about your word, so that we might represent you well in this world and through our lives. Amen. Okay, here we go. What's the problem? Um, I see two big things. First of all, um, I don't like this. I read this story and I'm just like, I'm un- I don't like this. I'm uncomfortable with this. And I say that first because anytime you read scripture, if you read something and you find yourself going like, what is this about? Let's be honest about that, right? Can we just start by being honest about how we respond when we were- read God's word? But second, one of the specific reasons I don't like it is because this appears contradictory. Here's what I mean. Just not far before these stories, uh, God was speaking to his people and he gave them some laws or some words, or we often call them the Ten Commandments. You know, the thou shalt nots. One of them was thou shalt not kill. Well, this story seems to be different than that commandment. But then, of course, in the New Testament, Jesus gave us even more explicit instructions. Things like, oh, hey, if you've got an enemy and they strike you on one cheek, you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to turn the other cheek and just let him strike you again. Or Jesus says this insane thing. He says, if you've got an enemy, you know what you're supposed to do? Love them. Joshua 5 through 8 does not, to me, look like love for my enemy. I don't know, but that just doesn't look like love to me. So this story appears contradictory with other things we see in Scripture. And then last but not least... Um, This appears to be, when I think about justice as I understand it, justice as scripture lays it out, this appears to be unjust behavior. Anybody that's thought even remotely about what it means to wage war in a just way, which is its own huge, challenging, messy, complicated process, you know, project, um, is going to look at this, this, you know, warfare and say, this is unjust. So that's just the beginning. We could say more, but I think that's the beginning of 
why this text is problematic. So how high are the stakes? We've kind of already gotten at it. Um, first of all, people reject God because of this story or because of stories like this. This story presents an image of a God that many people want nothing to do with. So if this story says what on first glance it looks like it might say, that is a problem we need to deal with. But second, it's not just externally, but internally, we often experience some, some dissonance, some tension, some disconnect. When we read throughout Scripture and we see these different images of God, we say, well, what am I supposed to do to that? How am I supposed to resolve this tension? Am I just supposed to be like, well, I guess God used to be really mean and violent, but now he's loving and forgiving, and that's fine. Uh, I don't think that's, I'm not very comfortable with that, so I want to try to find a different way to resolve the tension, and I want to try to do it as honestly and faithfully as I can. So therefore, here is my attempt at making the argument of coming to a different conclusion. If one conclusion is, this God's a monster, nothing to do with him, I think we should come to a different conclusion. So, um, a few things I want to I uh, explore. First, anytime we're reading an ancient text, and this is an ancient text, I mean, this is thousands of years old. Anytime we're reading an ancient text, we need to pause and remind ourselves, this text was not written to me. And here's what I mean. Because I think scripture was written for you, for your good, for your benefit, for your instruction, but it was not written to you. Do you know how I know? Because not only were you not alive, but people at this time could not even imagine that you would be alive living your life in the way that you're living it right now. I mean, we are in a room with wireless internet connectivity, with a hearing loop for our deaf, hard of hearing community, live streaming to people around the world. I don't know if anybody around the world, but it sounds, I mean, they could. Anybody could, right? We have heating and air conditioning. Our world is literally unbelievable. Our world would be like magic. It would be sorcery to the first audience. So we have to remember this text was not written to you. It was written to ancient people, and we are jumping way back in history. But it's tough because when we get it, we get it in a nice book with faux leather binding and the map section and the index at the back with the little cross-reference column in the middle that we all look at and we're like, am I supposed to do something with that? Because I don't know if I'm supposed to do something with that. But maybe if my pastor told me, I would try it, right? We get it as like this one neat modern-looking thing, but that's not what it was. And like I said already, the ancients saw warfare different from us. I actually think the first audience would have read this story and they would have had no problem with it whatsoever. They would have said, yeah, that sounds about right. That's how God's worked. Let's move on. So the problem is ours that we're importing back to the text, and that's good to remember. All right, let's get into some archaeology and Hebrew language. So first, um, I want you to picture in your mind um, what does the city of Jericho look like? How big was it? What did the walls look like? Maybe, like me, you have a Sunday school teacher to thank for an image of this big, imposing city. Now, if you were to think about 
the size of a city's wall, you can kind of directly correlate some things. The bigger the economy of the city, the bigger the importance of the political people living in the city, the bigger the cultural or religious hub of the city, the bigger the walls. And often Jericho is depicted as this city with giant walls, so it must be a huge city with tens, of, maybe hundreds of thousands of people living there. Well, it turns out the archaeologists, you know, the archaeologists, those guys, those gals, um, they've gone and they've dug up the ancient city of Jericho. And you know what they found? It was not a big city. And there's not much evidence that the walls were actually very big walls. There's many who, when they look closely at the archaeology, they conclude, in fact, that Jericho was actually a military outpost. Not only was it not a big city, it may well have been not a city at all. So when the text says all of the men and women, young and old, were killed, there's a good chance that there were very few non-combatants even in this city to begin with because maybe it wasn't even a city. Maybe it was just a military outpost, a fort, a garrison, a bunker. Pick your word. City is just a catch-all word for any sort of dwelling with many different people. Um, Second, we then think about uh, the tactics that Joshua employed uh, under God's command, marching six times around, and the seventh day, seven times around. And there's some evidence, some scholars have talked about and pointed out, that in ancient warfare, there actually were provisions for non-combatants to leave the city before the actual warfare actually began. So maybe there weren't many non-combatants to begin with, but even if there were, um, oh, Okay, so Jericho may not have been, there may not have been any non-combatants present, but even if there were, uh, non-combatants were plausibly given a chance to leave safely before the battle began anyway. And then last but not least, we look at these phrases. It says, destroy all the people from the men, or, you know, men and women, young and old, everybody. But we look at these Hebrew phrases, and one of the things you can do is you can look at a phrase and you can say, okay... I read this here. Where else in ancient literature does this same phrase get used in other writings? And we learn how it's used in other places, and that helps us make sense of how it's used in this place. Well, it turns out that these two phrases, the men and the women, the young and the old, actually the specific phrase is from the men to the women, from the old to the young. And when you look at how it's used in different places, it turns out it actually just means everybody. It doesn't mean specifically these categories of people. It's just putting out a spectrum, and it just means everybody. So we actually have reason to think maybe God wasn't commanding the murder of innocent people. Maybe those innocent people were given a chance to escape if they were there. We certainly know Rahab and her family were given a chance to escape. It doesn't say specifically otherwise. But I think there's plenty of reason to say maybe what we get at first glance isn't what actually happened. And then we flip to a completely different side of the equation. When we look across this whole narrative arc, um, here's the picture that is being painted. These cities, Jericho and Ai, are depicted clearly as enemies fighting against God. 
And there's actually one other enemy who chooses to fight directly against God, one of Israel's own, Achan. And the picture that we get is that according to God, justice and mercy are equal for all people. The Israelites and the outsiders are held to the same standards. Mercy is available both to the Israelites and to the outsiders if they turn towards God. And that may be one of the more radical ideas present in ancient times, because that was not necessarily to be assumed, especially in a warfare situation. Which brings us to my last point that I, that I hope kind of ties it all together. And, and this is that we need to remember that what we're doing is we're reading one story at one point in Scripture. But the whole of Scripture is crafted to tell a big story that weaves them all together. And I like to think of it this way. I like to think that Scripture has a trajectory. This one story that we have, about one point in history, God's people in one time and one place, it is one piece of our understanding of who God is, but that one piece is designed, designed not to tell you everything you need to know, but to tell you one thing that gets you ready for where Scripture is actually going. And where Scripture is actually going is this. The most full picture of God is Christ. And I'm not just making that up. The author of Hebrews said it explicitly. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then get this. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Here's what I suggest. If Jesus Christ is the exact representation of who God is, that implies that previous representations of who God is are good and helpful in their place, but they are not the exact representation. Rather, stories like the attack of Jericho and Ai are meant to be pointers getting us to move towards the goal, which is to see God through his son, Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said it this way, Jesus is what the Father has to say. So if I keep all that in mind, okay, God revealed himself perfectly through Jesus. And what he revealed in Jesus is that God wants to take his power and lay it down and give it up for the good of others. God wants to bless people so that they might be a blessing to others. God wants to do his work to forgive others. If that's where scripture is going, what do I do with this part of it? Well, it could be that if I consider the assumptions about how God works, the assumptions by ancient people about how God's work and what they look like and, and how oftentimes petty or unjust or violent they are and how normal that is, I think we can make this conclusion about the stories from Joshua 5 through 8. We can make the conclusion that for ancient people, they would have seen a God who always challenges humanity towards greater justice and mercy. When we stand here in our life and we look back, 
we say that doesn't look very just or merciful. But I think the first audience would have read this story and said, that's a God who's pushing the boundaries of justice and mercy in our world. And sure enough, that is the trajectory Scripture takes. God constantly pushing his people towards greater justice, towards greater mercy, towards greater forgiveness, towards greater equality. That's the theme that shows up to be true time and time again throughout Scripture. I think these are stories about a God whose justice and mercy was breaking down barriers and expanding the mind of what people could imagine even possible. Which means, as always, it's time to ask, what's your move going to be? We've been saying uh, three things every week. Meditate on God's word. Practice curiosity. Cultivate joy. And I want to talk a little bit just about the first two. Um, you know, we, we introduced this idea of meditate on God's word. And in our language, the word meditate often conjures up images of like, I close my eyes and I think silent thoughts to myself by myself. Meditation is sort of like a silent personal thing. The Hebrew word literally meant to mumble or to speak. When scripture says meditate on God's word, it actually very often pairs it with May the word of God be on your lips. When God's word is on our lips, when we're talking it, speaking it, that's when we're meditating. So let me suggest this. What would it look like for you to meditate on God's word this week by having a conversation with somebody about this question? Is God good? In the story of scripture, does it reveal a God who I would even want to yield my life to? By having that conversation, I believe you are faithfully meditating on God's word. Second, we've been talking about this idea of, I, I, I even called it to a friend, I called it a prayer practice uh, of practicing curiosity. And here's the way I think of it as prayer. If there's anything in your life that you're looking at and you're going, this looks like a Joshua 5 through 8 thing to me. I'm looking at this and I'm going, there's no way a good God would let this happen or make this happen. This just doesn't make sense. The prayer would be, but God, help me stay curious until I can figure out the good you're actually doing. Even if all I see is not good, help me stay curious until I see the good you're actually doing. I mean, consider this. If you're, if you're honest, try to be honest. I know you always try to be honest, but sometimes you need to, like, really try to be honest. Uh, do you have any problems with God? I mean, are there things in your heart that you're like, you know what, if I'm honest... God, I don't know if I like this about who you are. I, I see something, and when I think about you, and when I look at what's in front of me, that's a problem. How could you practice a holy curiosity that says, but maybe, just maybe, just maybe, I don't actually see the whole picture yet. And you, God, might be up to something good, even if I can't see it. Because I believe, I really do, that in every circumstance, if we can have the patience and if we can have the openness, we can discover yet again the God who is going to continually challenge us towards an even more beautiful picture of justice and mercy, of love and forgiveness, of his grace breaking into this world 
And he even wants to use our lives to do it. Would you pray with me? God, we acknowledge this is a, this is a heavy topic. This is a heady topic. Um, I pray that we would let these thoughts sink from our heads down into our hearts. God, for anybody in this room, for anybody watching online, either now or you know, in the weeks or months to come, help us to be honest. If we have serious questions or problems with who we think you are, And ultimately, God, here's our prayer. Continue to challenge us to see an even bigger, an even greater, an even more beautiful image of your desire for justice and mercy, for love and forgiveness in this world. And and God, don't just show us that image, but God, would you continue to invite us, challenge us, and strengthen us to join you in making that the reality in our lives, in our communities, and indeed in the whole world. Amen.